thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, retired U.S. Navy Captain Fitz Lee and I discuss how to pass gas uh, between aircraft and flight. Oh, dear. Hello, everybody. This is Vincent Aiello, host of Your Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. We have an exciting interview for you coming up. This is episode five. We're talking aerial refueling. But before we do, I just want to share a couple things with you. And one is I'm excited that it's almost air show season. Every March through November across the United States, you can find air shows and The big headliners are usually the Navy's Blue Angels and the Air Force's Thunderbirds. And the Blue Angels always have their very first show of the season where they perform their winter training. That is in Southern California at Naval Air Facility El Centro. It's about two hours east of San Diego, maybe four hours west of Phoenix. And I'm hoping to go to that show this year because it's always a great show. They had 40,000 attendees last year. They'll have other acts, of course, besides just the Blue Angels. And it's always just great to get out there with family and enjoy a day in the sun. So if you live in Southern California, Southern Nevada, or Western Arizona, drop me a line if you're going to be out there. Maybe we can arrange to meet up somewhere and say hello. This year, it's the second Saturday. It's usually the second or third Saturday of March. And for 2018, it's going to be March 10th from 9 to 4 p.m. at Naval Air Facility El Centro. So come on out and check it out with us. All right, well, as I've said on previous podcasts, this show has been doing pretty well. We're getting continued support and encouragement from everyone, and I just want to share one message I received on Facebook. This is from Mike, who said, your podcast is fantastic. I binge-listened to the first four episodes in one day. Great work. I listen to about 20 different podcasts every week, and yours is among the best. You're too hard on yourself, though, and those tiny mistakes you always point out. Probably a fighter pilot debrief habit. Tim Ferriss is one of the top podcasts in the world, and he makes way more mistakes than you do, to the point that it really takes away from the listening experience. You're doing a great job. Can't wait for the next episode. All right, well, thanks, Mike. It's uh, an honor to be put on the same page, if you will, as Tim Ferriss. I listen to some of his stuff as well, and that guy's definitely achieved a lot of successes. But you know what? You're absolutely right. As Sunshine and I discussed in episode one, it is very common to return from a mission and point out what we did wrong. And there seems to be some unspoken rule that if you point out one of your own faults first, then you get a buy, particularly in a instructor-student situation where, you know, the student comes back and if he says, hey, I did this, this, and this wrong, the instructor at least recognizes that the student understood where the mistakes happened. So I guess I bring that to my podcasting. Uh, But you know what? I appreciate you pointing that out. Other people have as well. And I'm going to do better. I'm going to quit doing that. And we're going to just have a good time on this podcast and not sweat the little things. So thanks for that, Mike. All right, let's get on then to the question and answer segment. My first question is from Sam, from San Francisco. Sam asks, when did the Navy and Air Force start putting AIM-120s on the wingtip rails of FA-18s and F-16s? I had a ton of books on aviation in the pre-internet days, and every single picture depicted aircraft with AIM-9s on the wingtips. Was it something the AIM-120 was always designed to do, or was there a development later on that allowed it? All right, thanks for your question, Sam. So for everyone else, if you're not familiar, those are air-to-air missiles he's talking about. An AIM-120 is a semi-autonomous radar missile, and the AIM-9 is a heat-seeking missile. So Sam, the F-18 has never carried AIM-120 on the wingtips, so that's an easy answer for the Navy. Uh, And the F-16 
When it became operational in 1979, it was more than another decade or until 1992 that it began carrying the AIM-120. So sometime after that, they probably tried it. And it wasn't a development question for the missile. It really comes down to the aircraft and the interface with the launcher that the missile attaches to. So the Air Force decided to try that out. And what they found, according to a friend of mine who did a career in the Air Force flying F-16s, was that it actually increased the fatigue on the wing and shortened the service life of the service life of the F-16. And it also was creating fuel leaks and other problems. So you will see photographs of F-16s carrying AIM-120 on the wingtips. Uh, but for the most part now, they try to attach the AIM-9s out there and just mount the AIM-120s under the wings somewhere. All right, next, let's go to a phone call. Hey, Vincent, this is Sam calling from Delaware. My question is, as an aviator, you clearly receive an enormous amount of technical preparation and practice to operate the jet and work together safely and effectively in the air. I'm wondering, do you receive any psychological preparation for the killing you may need to do? While the jets are amazing and fantastic pieces of technology, ultimately, the truth is that fulfilling a given mission may require killing people. That can be hard to handle, especially in this era of high-resolution targeting pods and precision-guided munitions. Thanks. Keep up the great work. Thanks for your question, Sam. You know, I never personally experienced psychological preparation, as you put it, for killing. I don't know of anyone else who has. I don't know if the Air Force is different, but I doubt it. And I imagine it's available for people who seek it out, but it's not something they do preemptively. You know, in aviation, we have the benefit of doing our killing from several miles away. So that takes a little bit of the face-to-face -face interaction out of it. I don't know about the infantry guys. I imagine they do get such things. But for us, we have the benefit of being at a distance. All right. Last question for today is from Gene from Slovenia. And he asks, since the FA-18 is a versatile multi-role aircraft that performs many different roles like CAP, SEED, CAS, anti-ship, etc. And just a quick side note, these are all missions that the F-18 performs that we'll talk about in a future podcast. I imagine it may require a lot of knowledge and experience to be able to perform all of these tasks. I would like to know if all Navy F-A-18 pilots are trained in all or most of these roles, or is it squadron and or model specific? For example, do some single-seat squadron fo squadrons focus more on air-to-air -air and two-seat squadrons focus on air-to-ground? I would really appreciate it if you could shed some light on this. Keep up the good work. Really enjoying your podcast so far. All right, well, thanks, Gene. And yes, you are correct. There is a lot to know when you are an F-18 pilot. And that's why in episode one, I compared it to the prestige of being an attorney or a doctor because I do believe that the amount of information a fighter pilot must understand and refresh and keep close to mind at different parts of the flight are extensive. So it is a very difficult job. The answer to your question is pretty much every F-18 pilot does every role the F-18 can with one exception, and that is the Forward Air Controller Airborne, or FAC-A. That is a job that requires two crew just because of the immense coordination and communications that are required for that mission. Now, if you're not sure what that mission is, you might recall from episode three when we were talking with Vern, he said he was a forward air controller on the ground. Well, we also perform that role in the air while flying, and it's the coordination with troops on the ground as well as combat-loaded aircraft, and it requires quite a bit of detailed coordination between those two to make sure that the bad guys are hit, not the good guys, and that the bombs are where they're supposed to be at the appropriate time. So that is a mission that only the two-seat squadrons will do. But other than that, every pilot, every model aircraft for the F-18s uh, are all pretty much the same. All right. Well, with that then, let's move on to the interview. Today, I am joined by my very good friend, Captain Fitz Lee, call sign Dud of the United States Navy. Welcome, Dud. 
Hey, good to be here, Jello. Uh, happy to be here. Oh, great. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Today, we are talking about aerial refueling. But before we do, could you just give us a quick summary of your background, where you're from, uh, what your career has been like so far, so the listener can get to know you? Sure. I'm, a, uh, I'm actually a third-generation naval aviator. Uh, in fact, our whole family's been in the uh, military since uh, this country began. We're kind of like Lieutenant Dan, my family, because we all, we all got shot at, but we all lived. That's the difference. Um, grew up all over the place, but uh, ended up uh, finishing high school out here in San Diego, California. Uh, commissioned back in uh, 1993 through the uh, NROTC program. Uh, had a wonderful career, um, mostly uh, flying hornets. Um, uh, did a few deployments, uh, more than a few, uh, <laughs> seven deployments in my career, five of them uh, under uh, combat conditions. Uh, I've had the uh, privilege and honor of uh, commanding a uh, Super Hornet squadron overseas out of, in Japan. And uh, I've served the last six years here in Coronado uh, with what we call the uh, type commander, the uh, three-star admiral in charge of all of naval aviation, helping uh, to develop uh, po- policy and, and basically man, train, and equip Naval Aviation Forces. So it's been, a, it's been a great ride. Outstanding. So you've flown the F-18 in all its flavors. You and I have done a couple of deployments together, yep. as I recall. Absolutely. And most recently, you're still flying, right? You're flying the F-5 Tiger now? I am. Uh, so I'm flying a part of our aggressor uh, squadron that we have. It's a reserve squadron up in Fallon. Uh, with uh, VFC-13, the Saints, uh, and it's, it's a fantastic mission. And that is one of the few aircraft in our inventory that actually does not aerial refuel. No, right? it does not, <laughs> and nor does it have. So it doesn't have an in-flight refueling probe. It doesn't have a thing called a heads-up display or a HUD. It doesn't have a I radio altimeter. I better interrupt you there before you say something <laughs> yeah. you might regret. Don't yeah, forget, right. these guys are flying you, so that's right. it's, it's a good little workhorse. It, fantastic. Uh, it does what we need it to do. All right, outstanding. Well, so why don't you tell the listener, if you would, what is aerial refueling and you know why do we do it okay well so just like any other uh, mechanized vehicle out there that runs on gasoline uh, you gotta you know pull over and get gas every once in a while and obviously in an airplane you don't have that opportunity what we've developed is an, an ability to to get gas while we're flying and we get that from another airplane um Obviously, that has tremendous operational uh, impacts. Um, but, you know, we're also fly, uh, you know, those of us in the Navy are flying off of aircraft carriers in the middle of a very large ocean. And there just simply isn't any other place to go. So, uh, you know, to have that gas and to be able to get that gas airborne, if the only place you can land is unable to land you at the time, is extremely important. So that's why we do air-to-air refueling, um, you know, primarily in the Navy. And, of course, again, for any of the long large-scale um, missions and long you know, uh, ranges we need to fly, whether it be Navy or Air Force, um, you need that gas airborne to allow us to accomplish these, these missions. Obviously, no secret, we've been uh, fighting wars now for, gosh, almost our entire careers. Uh, and those wars have been you know, taking place hundreds of miles away from an aircraft carrier, right. and in some cases hundreds of miles away from any kind of base anyone can land. So having uh, fuel airborne and the ability to get it is absolutely critical to be able to do our mission. Sure. So unlike in a vehicle where if I run out of gas, I can pull over and stop. If I'm in my airplane and I'm running out of fuel, that's obviously very bad. Yep. There's only one, ch- ch- uh, you know, only one option at that point, and that's to get out. Now, again, getting out of your vehicle is usually not a big deal. Getting out of an airplane that's in flight is not a fun thing. Sure, sure. Or so I've heard. <laughs> well, let's find some wood and knock on it. Okay, so we talked about we do it because it just extends the operational reach. It extends endurance, i.e. the amount of time we can remain airborne. Sometimes we do it simply because there's no other option, like you said, at the open, out in the open sea. And in some cases... Actually, refueling aircraft themselves will will tank to consolidate, as we call it, to get any available fuel into one aircraft so the others can go home. Right. Actually, you bring up a great point. Uh, the the fact is, uh, oftentimes uh, we need to stay stay airborne, uh, whether it's because we're surveilling a particular area, uh, or as I mentioned earlier, alluded to earlier, we've got such a long distance to go. Uh, you know, if we can only stay there for 30 minutes because that's all the gas that's available and we've got to come back, that really doesn't do much. So extending our time on station is, is, is how we would normally say it, as you know. Um, that's exactly what uh, aerial refueling allows us to do. Okay. And so aerial, aerial, easy for me to say, refueling has been attempted really about as long as airplanes have been flying. I did a little research and found out they were messing with it as early as the 1920s. Did not really perfect it, though, until after World War II. And it was the Korean conflict that really had tactical refueling be a part of the commander's uh, repertoire, if you will, and, and affected their ability to wage war. 
Um, but these days, it's almost ubiquitous. Uh, at least when we're operating around the carrier, it's almost every flight, it seems like. And there are a few differences in how aerial refueling takes place, particularly between Navy and aircraft, excuse me, Navy and Air Force aircraft. And I was hoping you might just articulate some of those differences for us. Okay, so um, starting off from the Air Force, uh, what we call, you know, big wing tankers, uh, KC-10 or KC-135s, um, they have two different systems. We prefer the drogue system, the one that we're used to. Um, so we'll start with that on the, uh, on, typically on a, a KC-135, if you're lucky, you'll have a, uh, what we call a wingtip pod that they, you know, where it's got a drogue that they, they, they release out. So say, if you all can imagine a kind of a basket attached to a hose and it just kind of falls on out and we, we end up plugging into that. We prefer that method. Um, however, the other method that the Air Force uses on its own airplanes and modifies for us is this boom, op, you know, this boom uh, that comes out from the back of, say, a KC-10. And the airplane, the difference in it, we fly into the drogue. You know, so we're flying formation, and we, you know, uh, using some pretty precise flying, fly into the drogue, c- connect, get gas. Air Force stabilizes behind the airplane, underneath this big airplane, the KC-10, follows a series of lights, gets steady, and then an operator in the back of the KC-10 flies, if you will, the boom into the aircraft. And that works well. Again, they do that with all of their aircraft. We're, we're unique in the fact that we need a drogue. So going back to that KC-135, I know you know what uh, best is the Iron Maiden. That's it's, right. It's destroyed more than a few uh, fuel probes on F-18s and others, where it's actually a drogue that is attached. It's only about uh, 10 feet or so or 15 feet worth of hose attached to the boom. And it, uh, it it's just a very unwieldy and uh, difficult uh, system to, A, get in and then stay in. Uh, and, uh, again, that's broken more than a few uh, air-to-air refueling probes off an AV aircraft. Yeah, for sure. I remember one time uh, I, I wear a yellow visor, and it was near sunset. We were over Iraq, and the sun was low on the horizon. And I was already plugged in, and they made their turn, the aerial tanker did, because they have to stay on basically a a racetrack type pattern and they pulled me right through the sun and with that yellow visor and that short hose just trying to stay in was everything I could do and it was terrifying and thankfully I did but just to expound on what you're saying the 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 in-flight refueling probe on Navy and Marine Corps aircraft is, is built kind of purpose-built for if there is too much tension or stress it's going to break away at a certain spot and of course the unfortunate result of that is you won't be able to refuel anymore. And the second and probably more important result is it might fly down one of your intakes and, and fod or, or damage your engine. But it's, I guess, arguably better than having a, a fault occur somewhere else. And I just want to step back a little bit, though, quickly to describe some of what you were talking about. So a basket, I kind of think of it as like a sea anemone type shape. It's got a weird, you know, it's got some different uh, veins on it and whatnot to keep it aerodynamically stable, but it's it's essentially a giant basket. What is it, about two feet across, perhaps? And so I think the best analogy, and certainly someone, if they wanted to, could make some jokes here, but uh, I think we'll refrain, but essentially it's, it's a male-female connection is essentially what's happening. And on a Navy and a Marine Corps aircraft, we have a probe that extends, and in a sense, the, the probe is the male end and the basket is the female, and it's, it's up to us to put the probe in the basket. Uh, Whereas on the probe aircraft, as you were talking about, the receiving aircraft has an opening and it is up to the fellow in the back of the tanker aircraft to fly the probe into the aircraft. So again, I'm trying to be delicate here, but I don't know, what are, what are some advantages or disadvantages of, of those two systems? Well, I think, uh, you know, from our perspective, uh, there's, uh, we are the ones that are in uh, control. We're the ones that control the rate of closure onto the basket. We're the ones that uh, control essentially the whole process. So when you're working with a, a, the the uh, uh, the drogue, you know, the basket drogue, uh, the, the simply from the res- from the from the, uh, the, the the tanking aircraft, the one that's giving, not receiving. All it does is simply hit a switch and. The drogue is released in it, and the air, uh, you know, airstream into the airstream. The airstream blows it back. It's it's controlled by hydraulic pressure, but that's all they do. It's a switch, and it goes back. And after that, it's it's completely dependent upon the pilot uh, of the aircraft, the receiving aircraft, to engage the drogue, stay in the drogue, and then when he's done, back out. And of course, they they reel it back in. Uh, again, only responsibility 
with the uh, the way the Air Force does it, if you're an Air Force receiving aircraft, is you still it's it's not non precise flying. You need to be in a particular position. It's not like the boom's got uh, you know a, a huge you know play. It's you've got to you be there, but you just stay there. And then let those guys or gals, whoever's in, in the back there, actually get the probe to the, you know, into the uh, uh, into your aircraft. Sure. So I guess the boom system, as I understand it, can can pass fuel a little more quickly, which is probably an advantage for Air Force aircraft because they can get in and out, get their gas quicker. But on the other hand, on our Navy aircraft, particularly with ones that launch from aircraft carriers, they're not really designed to have someone in the rear of the aircraft flying the drogue, and I say that, or excuse me, flying the probe, and I say that deliberately because they have a little stick controller, and it's got wings, and they can actually fly it into the other aircraft. And so, but the disadvantage of that is, is that our system transfers the fuel a little more slowly, so it takes us a little longer, but it's also a little less complicated. So there's benefits and drawbacks to each system, I would suggest. Right, and when you're you're refueling, you know, so you mentioned the consolidation, so a KC-10, and for those who don't know what that is. If you know what an old uh, DC-10 tri-motor large aircraft, uh, uh, FedEx still flies the MD-11. looks kind of similar. So it's a wide-bodied large airliner. That's a big airplane carrying a whole bunch of fuel. Um, you know, and it needs to consolidate with w- another one just like it. That's a lot of fuel it needs to get rid of or, or dump quickly into the other aircraft. So that it, it facilitates not only not only do they refuel faster, but they've got a lot more to f- to fill up. Whether it be uh, a KC-10 or another large, you know, even if it's a B-2 bomber, there's a lot more fuel that needs to get transferred. Right. And now that said, yes. I should say there is one Navy aircraft that, in fact, has that. That same kind of refueling, and that's the E6 Century. Ah, so there is an air, uh, there is a Navy aircraft out there. Uh, it's a large 707 airframe. So this is now, if you all can imagine, 707. You don't see those too often anymore. But that's a very large, again, wide-body airliner with two large turbofan engines under each wing. It's a very large airplane. Uh, we use it uh, as part of our strategic nuclear deterrent force. It also communicates with our uh, ballistic missile submarines, a very unique uh, Navy aircraft. Uh, they live and fly and breathe out of uh, Tinker Air Force Base there in uh, Oklahoma, and they actually are the receiver off of a boom type of position, uh, uh, position to stay airborne. And they stay airborne for we'll just say a long time. <laughs> well, they need to. Someone's got to be up there making the communications happen. A good friend of mine from UCLA is actually the uh, Commodore of the wing there now. Uh, but I would correct you, Dud. There actually is a second aircraft the Navy flies. Come on, pop quiz in front of everyone. It's right next to you up there in Fallon. The Navy does have actually 14 F-16 A and Bs. Oh, of course. They do, yeah. have, do they have it? But do they, they actually use it? it? They don't use it. No. Okay, there we no. go. Yeah, that's yeah, true. I used, I used to fly those and, yeah. of course, ask that question and was told categorically no. So <laughs> Okay. Anyway. All right. Well, we've talked about some of the aircraft that refuel. Uh, the KC-10, KC-135 are the current Air Force tankers. They have a new one coming out. I believe they call it the KC-46 Pegasus. It's going to be based on the 767 platform. What are some Navy aircraft that give fuel? Okay. Well, now uh, our um, indigenous refueling capability in the carrier wing is strictly off of the uh, F-18 uh, Echo. That's a fighter, though. It is. It's a fighter, but also a tanker. Uh, it's a multi-role okay. fighter, and now one of the roles it does is tanking. Now, this is not unique in our history. We've we've taken uh, uh, refueling stores, which have their large gas tank with a that drogue that we were talking about earlier attached to the back of it. Um, we do, we've done this with a KC um, six. Right, or that we call KA six, K- yeah, yeah. yeah, KA six. So our old A six bombers became mm-hmm. tankers uh, for many years, though seventies, eighties, nineties, early nineties. Uh, the workhorse was our S three uh, Viking. But again, even so, that aircraft in itself was not designed as a tanker. Um, it's it, we put a, a refueling store on it, and it can do uh, refueling. In fact, it was a very good tanker. The S three was, um, but uh, now with the S three retire retired. Um, what we've done is we've uh, given that mission over to the Super Hornet in particular, now which is now the vast majority of our fleet. There's only a few legacy Hornet squadrons left in the Navy. But our Super Hornet squadrons, uh, now there's uh, two in each air wing. 
that uh, will have tanker configured airplanes. And what does that mean? It means it has that center line. We, we put it on the center line of the aircraft. That's where that uh, refueling store goes. And then we'll either have another uh, couple of tanks or as many as four. So we can have five. I mean, the thing carries a tremendous amount of gas, th- almost 30,000 pounds of gas right from the get-go. And, and for those who, who, who to try to put that in perspective, um, if I remember correctly from my legacy Hornet days, you know, we, a legacy Hornet sitting on the, on the ground with one drop, uh, drop tank was, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of what was it? 10, six, something like that. Uh, 10, six was internal. So about, you could another, get about 12,000. Yeah. It's number 12. Yeah. So you've got another full Hornet's worth of gas plus in this super Hornet, uh, when it takes off as a tanker. Sure, but with that many drop tanks and that heavy, isn't it burning more than it's giving? Uh, it's burning a <laughs> tremendous amount. If you have what we call a five-watt tanker, that's with all those drop tanks on, it's uh, it's burning at its, uh, what we'd say, max endurance, somewhere in the neighborhood of 8,000 pounds of gas an hour. That's a tremendous amount. Um, so we're not an efficient tanker when we're used that way, but there's ways we get around that. So if we've got a big tanker like that, what we want to do is get people to it quickly, get all that gas or as much gas out of it as quickly as possible, and now it's a little bit more efficient. I see. Okay. So the Marine Corps has KC-130s that also are aerial refueling tankers. And there's, of course, some foreign aircraft. Uh, I believe I tanked off a British Nimrod some some deployments ago and whatnot. And where are we going in the future with refueling, do you think? Well, I know in naval aviation, we uh, there's some talk right now as we develop our uh, our, our uh, carrier unmanned uh, aircraft that's just now in development. Um, we've given it a name, the MQ-25. Whether or not uh, what kind of capability it might have in the in the area of air-to-air refueling, I think it still remains to be seen. But it's certainly uh, an issue that we are looking at if we can uh, save a little bit of uh, life expectancies on our fighters. Um, and give that over to a, another aircraft, that would be uh, it would certainly be something we'd like to do if we can. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, call sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. For sure. Okay. All right. So we talked about who can pass gas, if you will. Uh, who can receive gas? Okay. So we'll just uh, we'll confine our comments right now, I guess, to the at least the Navy, the Navy, the, the Air Wing. And so in the Air Wing, uh, the Helos can't. Not in our carrier wing. And I'll be. I'll go back to that in a second. And we can't give it to our E twos right now. Um, and so those two types of aircraft can't get gas airborne. However. The all models of the F-18 now, which include the Growler, and when you and I started Jello, we had a Prowler with us. It was a different aircraft; it could get gas. Well, now the F-18 uh, F-A-18G Growler certainly can receive gas. All the Strike Fighters, uh, uh, Legacy and New Hornets, can get it as well. So everyone else can get the gas, but those those two can't. Now we are developing a new. Uh, we we are transitioning into a brand new uh, version of the Hawkeye. Looks uh, very very similar to the old version, but it's absolutely a, a, a it's a new generation, phenomenal uh, aircraft, and it is plumbed for air to air refueling. They've done some testing uh, on that. I don't know, I can't give you the answer right now whether that's been funded as a program of record moving forward. But if any at any time they wanted to uh, provide money, if that's not already going to be provided, they could, and that would extend the already pretty impressive uh, endurance capability of the E two Hawkeye. Yeah, I'm not so sure the crews actually want that. But uh, And just for anyone who may not be familiar, the uh, E-2 Hawkeye is a dual propeller aircraft. It's got a giant rotodome, a radar on the top, looks like a Frisbee, and it provides the eyes and the ears of the fleet. It goes out and looks for those long-range targets and whatnot. Okay, 
as well. Uh, the CH and the MH-53 Super Stallion helicopters can aerial refuel. And the MV-22, the CV-22, those tilt rotor aircraft, those are also capable. And then, of course, all the Air Force aircraft. So we, we talked right. Navy at first, but I think just about any Air Force aircraft seems to be able to refuel. That's right. And you mentioned uh, you mentioned the MV-22, which is coming to the aircraft carrier. That'll be uh, refueled. Well, we actually neglected to mention, I neglected to mention one other aircraft that we have on board, of course, and how can we forget them? Because they're always giving us the, bringing us the newspapers, magazines, and pizzas, and that's our COD brothers and sisters. Uh, the C2 Greyhound is another, it looks very much like the E2 without the radome. It's a, a twin turboprop, uh, large aircraft that not refuelable, not planned to be refuelable, but those other aircraft. And then we have special operation, uh, our, you know, folks that support special operations. Some of our, those helicopters are, um, are equipped to uh, air-to-air refuel. Correct. All right. That sounds cool. Well, take us through, if you would, a typical scenario for refueling around the carrier. I know you've done both sides of this. You've been the tanker. You've been the receiver. And I have, too. I'm sure we have uh, met up at different times in different uh, ways there, if you will. But just take us through what happens from, let's say, just before the carrier launch until you make it back as the, let's say, the tanker. Yep. Typically, we've got two different scenarios, so we'll start day and night, So, and there's different requirements as well. So in, during the daytime when we are operating uh, out there uh, in the carrier environment, we have to have uh, one hose airborne. Notice I didn't say one airplane. It's one hose. And one functioning hose, that's probably. Exactly, that's the whole point. It's got to be functioning, and that's getting what, I, what I'm getting to. So the, the first aircraft off, now, of course, the first day, uh, the first launch of the day, there's an anybody airborne. So we're going to launch the tanker, and we're going to launch somebody right behind that tanker to go check out the system's capability to deliver gas. It is called a package check. Uh, and so the tanker, if I'm not a tanker pilot, I'm going to go up to a predefined altitude overhead the ship. Uh, this guy who's or gal has already been decided, you know, picked to be the guy who's going to, uh, the person who's going to come up and do the uh, package check. We'll come up and we'll do a real quick, whether or not they're supposed to get gas or not, we'll, we'll look at, ideally, this is somebody that's going to get mission gas anyway, some kind of gas I've got enough to give, and uh, we'll give it to them. And once we... Once we've done that, we want to report and have to report back to the uh, to the folks on the carrier that yes, plugged in receiving. So now everybody is comfortable knowing that we've got a functioning you know gas station in the sky. Now that's working and that's daytime. Right. Yeah, let me interrupt you if I may, because there's a few details that I think our listener might find interesting, and that is as the tanker pilot, you're typically going to fi- fly a circular orbit around the carrier, and the carrier's moving, but relative to us, not very much. So it's a it's a circular orbit in the direction that the carrier is going. And so the receiving aircraft will try to find you one way or the other, a lot of times just using plain old eyeballs, but sometimes your radar, and then do what we call a rendezvous, just using geometry on the inside of the circle to close up on the tanker. And then typically we use hand signals to pass information back and forth to each other because as the pilot of the tanker, you can't really see your whole drogue system, can you? No. No, yeah. No, we do have a couple of rear rear mirrors. In the uh, in the airplane, but uh, you cannot at all uh, see that. So, like you said, we're going to give him a, a signal during the daytime. He's going to join up on our left wing, as you, as you mentioned, as the receiver. So, once he's there, I'm going to give him a, 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 a signal, and if you got, he's going to give me a thumbs up. And I, I do have a light status light in the cockpit that says, "Yep, it's extended. It's, it's giving their green light." Thumbs up. I give him a thumbs up, and he's good to go. And he'll go in there. He'll he'll uh, he'll you know go in behind the aircraft. He'll uh, again control his closure. He'll hit the drogue. Once he does that, I should see a status light there on my on my right panel that says, "Yep, I can see that the, there's, there's uh, gas flowing." Mm-hmm. Um, he'll confirm that, and then at that point, like I said, it's it's good to go. He'll pop up then also out of my right side, and we don't fly around with this thing, uh, you know, with the drogue out. So uh, before he leaves, if he's the last aircraft, because again, we don't know, we don't really, we want to make sure that it gets stowed, and uh, we'll give him a signal, kind of in reverse. Hey, we're getting ready to pull it in. We'll do it. We'll put the switch on, and it sucks it up. You can see it. I'll get another good status light that says, yeah, it's, it's basically stowed and all is good. And I'll, you know, give them the, uh, you know, go away sign. That's uh, again, hard to do on the, uh, on a, on a, uh, and the, on, on, the, on the radio here, here but uh, <laughs> yeah, man, it's a kiss right. off basically. Yeah. A little kiss off as yep. we say, and he goes and he flies away and we're all good. Yep. Okay. And so on the front of the buddy store that has the drogue on the rear of it is a little Ram air turbine that will spin up and provides a little localized, what, hydraulic power? Hydraulic, yep. yeah. Okay. Hydraulic power. And then you can electrically control it uh, with an extra panel they'll put in there when your aircraft is configured. Okay. So you've done the package check. Let's say you've got a 
four ship or division of F-18 regular Hornets that are going to come up and get gas. How do you control, if you will, you know, you've, somebody's already made a plan, right? And they said, hey, you got four of these guys, you're going to give each of them 1,500 pounds, let's say. How do you make sure they don't take more than they're supposed to? Yeah, so it's really important that you, on that panel there, you have a, uh, a switch that can control the actual amount. And so you dial that amount in. And you want to make sure you do that before you give him the thumbs up, and uh, he'll get back there, and then it automatically shuts off when it hits that uh, that amount. So when I'm the one who's flying, let's say, receiving fuel from you, I have my fuel page up on one of my displays in the cockpit, and I'm stealing glances, if you will, at it to see that the fuel is going up. But if I don't notice that it's stopped, then what am I doing? I'm looking for some lights or something on your buddy's That's store right. Yeah, you'll have uh, it's you'll have the uh, green light says it's, it's going, and it, and then when it stops, you get the uh, I think it's red light. I can't remember. I thought it's the amber. green light just went away. Maybe I don't. That's right. Thank you very while. much. It's been a while since I've been behind <laughs> the edge. That's exactly what happens. The green light comes on, and then uh, it comes off when it's and that's and that's what you look for. So as you're the pilot going back there, as you remember, you get in there, you plug, and then there's there are three lights. There's a red, amber, and green light. Like on a the, traffic signal, basically. Yep. Yeah, and once it's green, you know that's it's flowing, and, and you, just, you get a glance down there, like you said, your fuel page. You know that it's coming into the airplane, and you're good to go. And at that point, once you're 1,500 pounds, to use your example. Is up, uh, up, it's just going to stop. That green light goes out, and you go, okay, that's that's it. So if I'm number two and number one has already gotten his fuel, he's waiting for me, I clear out from underneath you, go to the outside of the formation, and then you two do the hand signals you just described, and then he and I just peel away and go do our thing, and we've gotten our gas. So, okay, uh, then towards the end, uh, again, we haven't had a show yet on carrier operations, but we will, and Essentially, as you said earlier, there's there's nowhere else to go a lot of times if you're out in the middle of the Pacific or any ocean for that matter. Um, so the aerial tankers are the only way to get more fuel if a guy needs it. So if you are, let's say, now the recovery tanker, as we'd call it, what's what's different about that? What's your mission now? Well, okay, so now as a recovery tanker, then we have to hold a certain amount of gas to be able to give minimum day, minimum night. And that... that uh, uh, that amount can is really determined by the air wing commander and SOP. Uh, and then so we, we have to have at least that. So one of the things that we're always doing is calculating to make sure that we have enough gas to re- complete an entire recovery and land at our minimum fuel, uh, what we call minimum ramp states, but at the same time have enough to, to give. And so uh, as a, a recovery tanker, it, the game becomes a little bit different. Now I am uh, watching and observing the recovery. Uh, and uh, during the daytime, uh, if somebody is low state, they'll come up on the radio because to that point, we don't know, as you know, uh, and I'm sure you'll cover in your episode, we don't talk very much during the day. But if there is a, uh, an aircraft that needs that gas, we're going to be called and we're going to have to, what they call, hawk that aircraft. And so what we want to do is we're going to fly our airplane to be in position. So when that airplane, if and when he misses on this last attempt to land, we essentially, as he comes off the carrier, he's looking straight ahead or to his 11, 11 o'clock, almost a great position to join. The basket's already out. We've already foregone signals here. It's just going to be, I'm here waiting for you. You're all good. All you have to do is come on up and join. And that's how the recovery works. So that can be a comfort for someone who's, for whatever reason, having a difficult time getting aboard. I'm sure you were a much better carrier landing pilot than I was, but I'll tell a quick sea story. I was in my very first at-sea period after training. I was a brand-new pilot to the squadron, and we were just off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida, and it was at night. And I came down and just missed all the wires. It's called a bolter. And, you know, every time we land, we go to full power so that if you do miss, you go around again. Well, went around and did it a second time and then thankfully had enough fuel to try again and did it a third time. So they told me over the radio, hey, your signal is a tank, you know, such and such aircraft at such and such altitude. And to your point, I looked up and, you know, it was a great sight. There he was right up there. Even in the dark, you can tell because they have a green flashing signal. And and this is back in 98. So it was a uh, S3. I went up there, you know, started getting a little nervous, still a new pilot, started to doubt my ability a little bit, and uh, thankfully got the fuel that they decided I needed, came back around and did the old under-over, or (laughs) over-under, so went too far and missed all the wires the first three times, came back and just put myself in a position where I was unsafe on the other side of the wires, too close to the back of the ship, and got waved off 
waved off twice, meaning the landing signal officers on the back there, they signal the lights and tell you, hey, you know, go full power, go around. And I did that twice. And at that point, I guess they decided I was just too young and green to get aboard that night. So they sent me home. So in, in a sense, what should have been a penalty was actually a benefit because I got to sleep in my own bed that night <laughs> and uh, picked up a newspaper and some Taco Bell for the fellows the next day and, and came back out and thankfully got aboard just fine with the, with the lights on. But that always stuck with me because that that can really damage your ego. But uh, for this case, as far as the story goes, uh, they were there and uh, ready to receive me, and that was fantastic. But what happens, though, if you, Dud, are the tanker, and now you're, when you come down to land after I've gotten aboard, you're the last guy airborne? All right, well, so that's, that, that is, that's a problem. Uh, <laughs> that would be a problem. So one of the things that when we're assigning folks to this mission, we, we generally like to, you know, but again, all of our aviators, uh, and we never had to worry about you, Jello. There's always room for Jello. Um, there's, uh, you know, anyone should be able to do this, but, you know, especially during certain weather conditions or at night, we are going to maybe selectively schedule some more experienced folks. Um, again, we're all, we always have a plan. Uh, so... If as that if I'm the recovery tanker daytime still we're talking right now, um, you know, I have a problem. Well, we've already remember we've already launched some folks. Uh, so there's another tanker airborne now at this point. So he could if I couldn't get aboard and now all of a sudden I have to be tanked. There's going to be a tanker airborne. Now, where that's, there's only one time uh, during, a, you know, uh, during the day where that's not the case, and that's at night on the last recovery. <laughs> the last cycle of the day. Right, right, the last cycle of the day. So in the last cycle, now it's not day, it's night, we have what we call the turning tanker last recovery. Uh, and I've done that many times, um, and I have actually launched on that, uh, on that mission, but not because of a tanker who get, couldn't get airborne, but we had a pilot in particular that was having a lot of problems, and the available gas airborne had, had run out, so now I have to launch. But, so that's what happens. We have somebody that's uh, either airborne already that can, who could, uh, could rescue you, if you will, and uh, at the case of the last recovery, that turning tanker, I, I land on the next to the last recovery, and the last person is that last recovery tanker. At night, we didn't cover this, but at night we have two hoses, meaning two airplanes with two good systems airborne. Uh, once you land, rather than shut down, I go to a, a strategic place on the deck of the aircraft carrier where I can be quickly launched, and I'm getting gas while I'm turning. So we'll shut, you know, I'm actually getting filled back up with gas. Um, from the aircraft carrier. Hoses. From the aircraft mm -hmm. carrier, that's right. And then uh, I'm ready to launch if required. So we always, I mean, that's the idea. We always have a backup. We do not want to have to. Now, speaking of sea stories, my 10th trap in the fleet was what we call a blue water uh, launch we were the carrier was in the middle of the pacific ocean where there an example where there just really wasn't any place to land uh and we were doing, other than the carrier other than the carrier that's correct and we were doing uh, some drills i was the newest pilot in the air wing uh, they were we were on cruise i had just been in in the squadron for about 45 days and and uh, i was sitting on our one of our catapults cat three to be exact it's what we call a waste catapult and the guy sitting off to my left and behind me on what we call catapult four Cat 4 was a very, very experienced former CAG LSO department head, uh, and uh, and I remember it was hot, steamy, and I didn't know what to do. I'm so new in the I'm just watching it. How much rain can a Hornet cockpit take because it was just hot and steamy? And when his canopy went up to get provide some relief, because we're on this what we call Alert 7, so we're parked on the catapults. Engines aren't running. No AC, nothing. It's just hot. So I'm up and down with him. And, and the short version of the story is, well, we ended up launching to do a drill. Uh, and typical, we launch and we, we go out 30 miles and the Admiral saw that and said, okay, good. We launched those two airplanes and, and within seven minutes, all is good. Come on back. So we come back. There's only two of us airborne. Now, this was an alert. So we, there was nobody airborne. There wasn't a tanker. There was Just nobody. the two of you. Just the two of us. So we, uh, we come back. He's the, uh, uh, oh, I'm the first one down, actually, which makes sense. The, the, the least experienced pilot. Of, I mean, it's not even close, night and day. So I'm the first one to come on down. I come on down, and I'm, I'm on my instruments. And it's interesting, as, as I get to about three miles, I see the instruments in my heads-up display indicating that I'm, I'm rapidly going off course. I'm like, wow, I'm, I don't think I'm turning the airplane, but th th it's moving pretty quickly. So, uh, it, it, you know, I, 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 oh, it looks like the ship may be in a turn. So I jump on pretty much a three-mile arc uh, and turn back, and I thought, there's no way in the world these guys are going to recover me. Uh, I just I have a distinct remember of seeing, you know, kind of seeing the ship, you know, getting in close, and I thought, there's no way I can land from here. Can I? <laughs> uh, and... Uh, 
Yeah, Oscar Meyer was the CAG paddles. Now Admiral Meyer uh, on the uh, on the uh, on the pickle there, recovering me. And uh, I did touch down. I'm not sure exactly where on the carrier, but it wasn't on the uh, anywhere near. I guess four wires because I didn't stop. And he said, "Hey, Dud, don't worry about it. It's good. LSOs do come up with a nice, smooth voice. The ship was in a turn. We'll get you next time." And I am so new that I'm just thinking this is just like it was three weeks ago when the you know the ragged structures were turning down the visibility, turning the ship, and making it as hard as possible. So again, once again, I thought, "Wow, this is just like the simulator. That's what the LSOs do." And uh, and I thought it was kind of funny too. A 99, they might as well have just come up and said "snapper" and and. Uh, uh, at that time, I think it was uh, Fug. Um, turn your uh, turn your taxi lights on. I mean, you might as well just call us by our first names because we're the only people in the you know three thousand miles airborne. He doesn't see the aircraft carrier until he actually comes to a stop. Now, you and I today sitting here would go, "Oh wow, uh, it's time to be pretty nervous." I was so new. All I kept saying is, "Didn't know to be afraid." I was like, "This is just like the simulator. <laughs> it's like that last one." Sure enough. Well, now talk about the tankers. Now the CAG's all worried. They're spooling up the tankers now. It's an S three, like I said. They're all running. It's a pouring down rainstorm. By the way, why did the ship turn? Because it was going into a thunder. Well, not really a thunderstorm, but very heavy rain shower. Okay. Winds shifting, so they have to turn. And now, of course, and you and I know this. And, and for all your listeners who want to be naval aviators, you know, big Pacific Ocean, the aircraft carrier will always be found under a storm cloud. <laughs> so there it is. It's stormy. Uh, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I, I couldn't see the ship. I just listened to the LSOs. By the grace of God, I landed. Uh, I think the entire ship went up in applause. CAG met me in the stateroom, or not in the stateroom, and down where we get out of our gear. Uh, and I think those S3 pilots wanted to write me into their wheels because they didn't get airborne. Because but, they uh, didn't have to take off. Yeah, so, so it, it can happen when we don't have gas airborne. Um, but normally, that long story to say, normally we have a plan. Yeah. There, there was no plan there. Um, and uh, we almost got bit. Wow. Yeah. Well, that that can be a problem. I have a similar quick sea story. I was actually the last tanker pilot to come down one night. This was when we were both in Japan. And, um, you know, like you said, they typically pick more senior people. And by this time, I was the air wing operations officer. So I'd had a couple few thousand hours and several hundred landings. And I don't know what I did that night, but I came down and, you know, basically they're waiting on me. And as soon as I land, they're going to put the ship to bed. And of course, I boltered. And it was awful because then, you know, at night it takes a little while to get around the pattern. So I don't know how many hundreds or maybe even thousands of people had to wait another 10 minutes because Jello couldn't get aboard. But I did get a little uh, ribbing for that. So yeah, I probably works. deserved it. Outstanding. All right. Well, I think we've covered just about all there is without going into too much history or, you know, nuanced detail of the hydraulics and electrical on aerial refueling. Anything else you want to add on any of that? Well, I think the nighttime is a, is an interesting thing. And I, and I, I for any, uh, again, uh, the thought here is that folks will be listening to this or maybe folks that want to get into naval aviation. And, and I'm sure some of those folks have some some parents who might have flown in the Navy. I mean, they might have been S3 pilots. So first of all, I want to give my hats off to those folks because here's why. Because at night, sure. at night, so we, in, in the Hornet, when we're doing our tanking mission, we are a full-up F-18 uh, Hornet, and we have very sophisticated electronics, a great radar. We have a, a network that allows us to see, uh, you know, where most people are, um, and so, and we can get all sorts of information. We can get their gas, you know, know what their state is, um, you know, ahead of time, and so. We have so much more situational awareness than it was ever possible in S3. And at night, it, it can get, you know, tricky. And not only that, we have, we're a fighter, even though we're not really, you know, in that configuration, we're not, you know, we're not, we can't pull seven Gs. But we can, we have an afterburner, and we certainly can pull enough Gs to get in position fast to be, uh, you know, in position for that Nighthawk in particular. And, uh, again, I think for those, I, I've, I've thought since those days, hats off to those S3 guys who are doing that would just basically kind of timing and uh, zen, zen, <laughs> uh, and we've got all these you know sophisticated systems in our airplane to make it happen. Now that that said, that really does make us in that regard a much better tanking asset when it comes down to handling uh, emergencies and and situations like that. I can go find somebody. I alluded to I think earlier uh, we had a situation once where I was I was launched. We were having a. a, a, a a pilot who was having difficulty. I was able to use my radar. It was bad weather. There was a lot of things going on. It was night. Uh, and uh, having the ability to rendezvous and to drive the situation much more than an S3 would have had the ability to do, I think, um, really makes a difference. So uh, we're not efficient, but we bring a lot of good, uh, good toys to the table to help do the tanking mission more safely and in critical spots. For sure. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to discuss this with me and our listeners. I hope they enjoyed 
getting an idea of it. As you said, it's a little bit difficult with only the medium of audio here to uh, explain it, but maybe we can throw some pictures or descriptions on the website. But before I let you go, uh, you talked about you were fug for a while, but now you're dud. So how, how did you tell us about your call sign? How did you get it? Jello, as you know, um, not the uh, stereotypical mold for a, a strike fighter pilot, having been. Uh, as I have sometimes joke with some of our distinguished visitors that I have a you know, chance to brief around, you know, I don't uh, smoke or chew or go with girls who do as a Sunday school teacher. And so I have a last name of Lee. And uh, so they're like, Dud, Dudley, do right. At least I think that's the story. And here's the thing for, for folks that are listening. Um, it's, you know, my call sign's not Maverick. You don't get to pick them. Uh, they're picked for you. And so, uh, and in most uh, cases, what happens, they have a call sign review board. And so for me, it's, it's rather boring. Had nothing to do with bombs going off or not going off. Um, so you didn't drop an unarmed bomb and nope. it was a dud? Okay. No, nope, that wasn't it. it uh, one could just say it's a personality defect. <laughs> well, or, or a benefit. I, that's, you know, God made you the way you are and it, we're good with that. So, all right, Dud. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time again. And I hope you enjoyed it. And we certainly learned something from you. So with that, we're going to sign off. Yeah, thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. Okay, take care. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion on aerial refueling. Let me just cover a couple terms that Dud mentioned in his discussion. One is the word FOD. FOD has two different meanings, but they're both closely related. It's foreign object debris, which is basically anything that's on the flight deck or the tarmac that could be sucked up and ingested into an engine and cause damage. And when it does that, then it's called foreign object damage. So FOD can FOD an engine. Yeah, a little redundant, I realize, but uh, it works pretty well. The next expression, I don't remember if we covered this before, but bolter. Uh, that is where when you attempt to land on an aircraft carrier, and for whatever reason, you do not come to a stop. Most of the time, it's because your hook on the aft part of the airplane lands beyond the fourth wire, and so you just miss all the wires, you go around again. But sometimes you can have what's called a hook skip bolter, where your hook touches down in the right place, but for whatever reason, there was not enough hold down pressure on the hook, and so it bounces over the wires, and you just keep going around for another try. So not a good thing. Uh, shoot, I should check my logbook, but I know I've got over my career about probably 25 or 30 of those things. Some are my fault, some are not, but uh, that's just the way it goes. And then the final thing is, I forgot to ask Dud what his future plans are, but I will confess that we recorded that several months ago, and since then, if you noticed at the very top of the show, I said retired Captain Fitzley, and in fact, he did retire from the Navy after about 26 years of service, and he is now an airline pilot like me. He still lives here on Coronado, so when our schedules align, we still get together, but uh, he left the Navy and has now moved on to greener pastures. All right. Well, that will wrap up episode five of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, send me a note. Let me know. If you have a question for the show, you can send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. You can also check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can find us on all the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. Please like us, follow, share, help us continue to grow this show. Now, as a reminder, the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So that'll do it. Until we see you back here in another 10 days, you fly safely. See ya. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.